0: Well, Gateway, good day to you. Kyle here. I'm one of the pastors at the Gateway Church, and if this is your first time here with us or perhaps your first time in a long time, uh, we are back in the gospel according to Mark, uh, which is a sweet joy. I love have grown to love the gospel according to Mark in a a way that I think has been unexpected to me because Mark is kind of a punchy text. And I I just have to say, I've been waiting a little while to say this. So um, if you have your Bibles, you can flip or tap your way on over to Mark chapter 14. And as you make your way there, just by way of reminder, this is where we started 2020. Not in Mark 14. We haven't been in one chapter for that long. But the Gospel according to Mark. You know, this is back in simpler times, before global pandemic and racial unrest was boiling over in major American cities and really around the globe. And wildfires were stretching out across the West Coast and in Australia. I mean, it was just—it was just simpler times. The election hadn't taken place, and so we, at that time, we really had as our hearts' desire and ambition to set ourselves at the feet of Jesus, just to be with our King Jesus. And at, at, at some point, I know that that might smack of Christian cliche, and yet it is still a potent hope. That simple goal of sitting ourselves at the feet of Jesus, it's so potent because that is where a disciple of Jesus is called to be, namely with Jesus. And so as we as we stepped into Mark in 2020, at the beginning of that year, we said that is where we want to be. We want to behold the image of Jesus so that we might know what it is we're hopeful to be transformed into. And today we, we step back into that and we say the same thing, that our hope is to be transformed out of the image of the world and into the image of Jesus. And so we are sitting at his feet, there with our true Jesus. And, you know, for us to be in Mark uh, is a bit odd because the gospel of Mark, it, it subverts our conventional gospel understanding. I don't know what tradition you all come from, but Mark is fast-paced. At times, he can be a a little blunt, a little punchy. He's critical of the disciples. I mean, really, Mark is writing to the church to provoke them, to provoke us, to help us re-examine our understanding of Jesus, lest we sit at the feet of a false Jesus. Just for example, in the chapters leading up to our episode today, Jesus is condemning the temple. He curses a fig tree, the sign of the temple. He talks about keeping watch for these times of tribulation are at hand, and that's less about like some sort of apocalyptic, some revealing of the end times of just saying that destruction is at hand. So keep watch. The temple is going away. God's presence is coming in a new way. And right before that, in chapter 9, we actually encounter this episode where Jesus is transfigured. He's transformed. He's glowing bright as the sun before some of his disciples. And in that moment, God breaks in and speaks. And God says two things. First, he says, this is my beloved son. He affirms the sonship of Jesus. And then second, he tells the disciples to listen to him. And the subtext right there, is that they've not been listening to Jesus. This is God's message for the church, a message that by his grace and his spirit that we might hear and so today, let us afresh hear his words. So if you're not there yet, Mark chapter 14 starting in verse one, this is what we read. Now the Passover and the feast of the unleavened bread were only two days away. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus, secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. While he, that is Jesus, was in Bethany reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came in with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. And some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Verse six, leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them any time you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money, so he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. This is the word of the Lord, and may God indeed add a blessing to the reading of his word. See, in this these 11 verses, Mark not only compresses the whole story up until this point, he does so with what's called an inclusio, and that's just a fancy word for a literary sandwich, and this is common in Mark's writing, this is something he often does, is he inserts a story, the meat, into the buns, and in this case, uh, they all together function to provide an overarching message. In our case, it is this unexpected devotion of a no-named woman that is held up as the exemplar of true discipleship to Jesus. Because you have the religious elite on one side who are scheming secretly, and on the other, you have one of Jesus's disillusioned disciples who look more like The religious elite scheming after Jesus than a one devoted to Jesus. And the middle contrasts the two. Her story is therefore set against the hatred of the religious leaders who cannot abide Jesus and the betrayal of Jesus. And so really, as we work back through our teaching text, we we have to keep that whole message in mind. And so let us, as we do so, let us seek not only to listen to Jesus as the Father commends us to do in Mark 9, but let us also be grasped by this reality that devotion to Jesus is never wasted. And so without further ado, let's work back through Mark chapter 14, verse 1. Again, hear this. Now, the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. Such an interesting verse. So much packed in there. And really, for me, what jumps off the page first is the authorities' determination to destroy Jesus. Take note of the language. They were scheming they were doing so in secrecy. And to what end? Death. You see, the context helps us understand their scheming because at this time, the Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread were one of the three high festivals in the Jewish calendar where Jewish diaspora would flock into the capital city of Jerusalem and there would be throngs and throngs of people there. And so Jesus is affirmed as a prophet, and maybe even more in those crowds. Jesus is well known. So certainly in the open, they can't seize Jesus and kill him, lest there be riots that go down, lest they are accused of something. So it's in secret that they do so, which is so telling. And while this jumps off for me, I think probably because I've been like shaped by soap operas and stuff like that and modern dramas, but this scene, this occasion really helps to shape the larger scene for Mark, which is the Passover. And and maybe you're new to the Bible or or maybe you haven't really looked throughout the whole thing. Whatever the case, Passover itself is a feast that commemorates that night long ago for the Hebrew people where God delivered them from their enslavement to the Egyptians. And in that night, God literally, Pasuk, he passed over the homes that were covered in the blood of the lamb that was sacrificed. That meal, Passover, commemorates that. And the Feast of the Unleavened Bread is a celebration thereafter. Passover, though, the thing that Mark is bringing to mind, Passover ignites the Exodus. And for Mark to call our attention to Passover is both to excite our imaginations about spotless lambs and delivered people and God's end to a reign of slavery, It's that, and it also is to have us thinking about Passover right before the next scene. So with our excited imaginations and Mark in fashion, like just as soon as we're there, we're gone. And Mark brings us to verse 3, and a woman in this moment breaks into the scene. It's a meal that presumably she's not invited to because the guests are already eating. And then she proceeds to break a jar of very expensive perfume over Jesus' head. And not that it's important to anybody, but this would have likely been spike nerd, like a, a a pure, it's like this undiluted ointment. It's coming from India, so it's been transported. It has all of this value. What we read is like a, a year's wages, 300 denarii, and she breaks it over Jesus's head. And so to state the obvious, this is not a subtle gesture. If you read across the gospel accounts, some are saying that this woman is using her hair to anoint Jesus's feet, which is a scandalous act. And so without harmonizing here, just staying with Mark, even so this is not a subtle gesture. And I I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but like, how does she do it? There they are eating. And it's like, certainly we would notice if somebody (laughs) is like coming in to break ointment over our head or something like that, or you would think at least. This is a good point for us to have like a side note on Mediterranean dining customs. You see, they would likely have been eating at a low table, picture a foot to 18 inches off the ground, and there would be cushions surrounding the table. And if you're thinking cushions like the couch cushion you're sitting on now, um, just erase that and think of the cushions that go on lawn chair furniture. You know, they're kind of thin. So they'd likely be laying on cushions on the ground, and then they would be propped up on an elbow. And... What that means is their head would be at the table and their feet extended outwards. So it's from that posture, that position, that you are poised to have an alabaster jar of pure nard to be broken over your head. that's what happens to Jesus. And when this goes down, listen to the response. This is in verse four. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume?" It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. The, the level of indignance is the same level of indignance that Jesus has with the faithlessness of the disciples just back in, in chapter 10. There's, this is almost like they're, they're um, like grumbling at this woman. Growling is how one commentator translates this, that they're growling at this woman. And according to those who are present, and for Mark, he doesn't even tell us, like he gives us some context clues. Are these the disciples, other people there? We don't, we don't know. Most likely it's the disciples. I, I'm operating with that understanding, but whoever they are, they think that this act by this woman is foolishness. And to them more specifically, it's a waste because it is, after all, a Jewish tradition during Passover to give to the poor. And Jesus just told an emerging leader that inheriting eternal life, that stepping into the fullness of the kingdom of God, that he must go and sell all that he has and give it to the poor. So this impulse, this response, it's not inappropriate. It's not outlandish. In fact, it kind of aligns with the narrative that's gone before. So isn't this waste it ought not this woman be reprimanded for what she's just done? Well, Tristan Collins, who's a, a therapist, wrote a recent work um, in a recent work, Why Emotions Matter, uh, which is about like paying attention to our bodies and growing an emotional intelligence. She, she wrote this, we all have expectations. We have long-term expectations about what our life will become one day. We have short-term expectations about how our day will go. We have expectations about how people should behave and how society should operate. Anger is the surge of energy and aggression we feel when those expectations are not met. It's a powerful feeling, a strong sense that you are right, that someone or something else is wrong, and that the situation needs to be rectified. So let's just linger here for a moment because Clearly, a moral boundary was broken that led to a surge of anger from this onlooker, like likely a disciple, potentially Judas. So much so that they rebuked the woman harshly. They growled at her. And, and did you notice the tone? I, I don't think that like we're reading anything into Mark by observing that harsh rebukes don't extend from gentle spirits. So yes, the question is like why this waste, but there is so much more at work there. This is about the perfume, but there's also something else activated in this moment. I think it's something that resonates with our spirit as well. And, and many psychologists, they call anger a secondary emotion because it's cued by something deeper like shame or fear. And I just found myself wondering if that wasn't at work here. If there was like a fear beneath the surface and anger was like the safe emotion that this person manifested. Like, is this not the question that we ask? Is it not fear that we have that that will like give ourselves to something so deeply, so fully, and that something won't give us what we return. Like it won't give us the return that we hope for. And we ask why this waste? So we we give ourselves over to something, a relationship, a business. We give one, three, five, 20 years over to a thing and and we think at that point, like this is going to go somewhere and then it stops and it's all gone. Or, Or you pursue your dream, you take the risk, you give time and energy and effort and loads of your own money to this thing and nobody cares. It's literally sitting in your closet whether literally or figuratively, and no one knows about it. Why all this waste? And so day in, waking and sleeping, like you're haunted by this question, why all this waste and this bitterness is welling up inside of you? And and you begin to replay all those things you would do differently now. You begin to go back and you and you rehearse those moments with the knowledge that you have now, and you try and put them back in there. But of course, that doesn't work because you can't take what you know now and transform you then. So a do-over is not a possibility. But then again, you it like frustration, unmet expectations. Like you just can't get the perfume back in the jar. You're thinking, why all this waste? And in our text, it, the question is about the perfume, but it touches on this almost like primal fear that our lives won't actually give us what we hope they will. And what's so interesting is uh, disappointment. Eugene Peterson talks about this: that disappointment is a signal in our bodies that we've have a misplaced hope, that is, we've placed our hope in something that won't give us what we want. And so this fear here is that what we're doing actually won't give us what we want. And then when we see that it doesn't, like anger comes out. And maybe I'm like psychologizing this moment and totally jacking this whole thing up. And if I, if I am, I, I apologize. But I think that there's actually something going on here. Something worth paying attention that there's something in this question that locates our angst and our ache in the world to be known and to be loved. But the perfumes on the floor, our expectations are unmet. And and to some who are in that moment with Jesus, man, it just feels like a waste. Because Jesus is talking again about going to his death, and it feels like it was all just a waste. But that's not how Jesus sees it. And that's why this is hopeful. Because devotion to Jesus is never wasted. And so let's pick back up in verse six. Listen to Jesus, leave her alone. See, how beautiful would this be if, you know, in the world, the economy of the world just has a different vantage point on things. So, so often in our devotion to Jesus, to use the Christian language, man, in the world around us, it looks so strange. What if in those moments the thing that came in was not the lie that it was strange, but was Jesus' voice? Leave her alone. What if we just took that in? Like with the confidence of Jesus with us, we knew that he was saying, Leave her alone. Leave him alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me because devotion to Jesus is never wasted. See notice how the presence of Jesus is like is calling this woman to a type of conduct that just doesn't make sense. It's it's a type of conduct that surpasses the typical standards that govern daily devotion. And here's what I mean by that. Like there's this scene back in Mark 2 that kind of hints at what's going on here. Jesus' disciples they're feasting while others are fasting. And then the religious elite—they're suspicious of this. They're like, "This is why Jesus gets called a glutton and a drunkard." And listen to Jesus's words in response. This is Mark two nineteen and twenty. It says, "Can the wedding feasts? Or excuse me. Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. It's not that they won't; they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them." and then they will fast in that day. See, but right now, for this woman, the presence of Jesus is calling her to do a categorically different thing. It's calling for a different response. It's calling for feasting, for pouring out, for anointing. We actually hear this back in In verse eight, when when Jesus says this, she did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Just as, as like to the side, no one in the gospel according to Mark receives a commendation such as this. The the second, like the close second? Who do you think it is? Is it Peter? Is it James? Maybe John? It's not the sons of thunder. It's not the rock. It's the Syrophoenician woman who Jesus called a dog. Her and this no-name woman received the highest commendations from Jesus. This is the beauty. Jesus sees something going on here. You see, in Jesus' culture, There is a way of honoring a loved one, especially a loved one who's dead, and it's this. It's that after the death, they would be anointed with oil. And what the onlookers, really the disciples, and again, potentially Judas, doesn't see is what Morna Hooker in her commentary helps us understand. She says this, she says, this story has another significance. And this is the way in which the woman's action points forward to Jesus's imminent death. Indeed, since in sixteen one, that is after the crucifixion of Jesus, the attempt to anoint his corpse is frustrated by his resurrection. So if, um, if you don't know what's going on there, Jesus has been placed in a tomb and there's disciples after the Sabbath, after the day of rest, they go with spices to do this anointing. That's the frustrating thing is that Jesus isn't there. So this premature action, picking up with Morna, this premature action symbolizes the fact that in his case, the normal ceremony will not take place. Jesus is anointed for burial before death because he will not be anointed after death. And he will not be anointed for burial then because God will raise him from the dead. You see, this woman will be Told. Her fame will spread because what she has done is told the gospel story in advance. She has poured out all that she has, just as Jesus will pour out all that he has. She has anointed him for burial because something else is coming. So she doesn't wait for after. It's as though she has this trust in Jesus trusting him that when he has said that he will be handed over and put to death and rise to life, that he actually means what he says. See, where some see waste, Jesus sees the sacred and the beautiful. And I love, like Jesus isn't rattled by this moment at all. Meanwhile, the onlookers are like fuming, they're growling, and Jesus is appreciating the beauty And if the whole place stinks like perfume, well, I guess that's just what happens in acts of devotion, isn't it? See, to a dying world, devotion looks like waste. Eugene Peterson says it this way. He says, because of Christ, we give off a sweet scent rising to God, which is recognized by those on the way of salvation, an aroma redolent with life just spilling over full of but those on the way to destruction treat us more like the stench from a rotting corpse why this waste you see all those years all those dreams all those diapers all of those things that feel like a waste or just they feel mundane. They don't even have to be the dream. They don't even have to be the thing that's tucked in your closet. It could just be your everyday life. They feel like a waste. But in Jesus, they are transformed because devotion to Jesus is never wasted. And if that sounds weird, stay, stay with me here. Because we ask like, how in the world can changing a diaper, and in my life there are a lot of diapers, how can that be beautiful? How does that even have the potential to be beautiful? And I I know that in this case, this woman is doing a unique thing. Like she is specifically anointing Jesus. So I'm not saying that all of your moments are like, your acts of devotion are anointing of Jesus and yet there is beauty to be had there. So how can this be? Well if you recall, At the start of this whole thing in the gospel according to Mark, there is a scene that goes down. Jesus goes under the baptismal waters. He enters into this renewal movement with his cousin John the Baptist. And as he's coming up out of the waters, the audible voice of the Father extends out and extends blessing over Jesus. It affirms him before he's done a single thing, he is the dearly loved son of God. That is who he is. And he stands in that. And then, like we talked about earlier in Mark 9, Jesus is transfigured. He's in in glory in front of his closest followers. And the Father again affirms that he is indeed the dearly loved Son. So at the beginning, and as he starts moving with intent toward the cross, he is known to be the dearly loved one. And he knows it in his core. Which means that for Jesus... He lives from a place of love. He lives from a place where everything is a gift. There's no scarcity in his life, but every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of Lights. in him, there's no variation or due to change. He is the one who provides, and Jesus lives there, abiding with the Father. And so it's from this place, it's from this place that we can learn why Jesus says this thing he says in verse 7. You may have noticed I skipped it earlier. Jesus says this, he says, the poor you will always have with you and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. See, the point is, is that there's something significant to be happening when Jesus is in their midst. And Jesus is likely drawing on this uh, message in Deuteronomy 15 that says, There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed towards your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. And I draw our attention to this because so often this passage, this teaching itself, it it gets turned around as an excuse for giving to the poor. It's like, gosh, I guess we'll always have the poor. They're always going to be there. We're never going to be able to do anything about it. So I guess we just kind of keep living our lives. And that right? Like we just don't really do it. This is far from the case. Jesus' intention here is to remind those who are with him of Deuteronomy 15, that the poor will indeed always be there. So reorder your life to give to the poor. And so yes, the impulse that this ointment could have been sold and given to the poor, that's a beautiful impulse. The intention is good. What they don't see though is that Jesus is with them. That Jesus is the end of her devotion and they miss it because they don't see that Jesus is with them. See, Jesus is inviting them to the both and to see the beauty of Jesus with them and to devote themselves to the poor. See, this woman, this woman is doing something particularly beautiful. And for many of us, this, this is just confusing. It's like, well, What does this mean for me? Like, what do I what do I do with my devotion to Jesus? And more specifically, what about all the losses and the heartaches and the hurts? Like, I feel in the core of my being this question that so much of my life is a waste. Like, what do I do with this? And, And I would I would just commend this to us as a church that with Jesus, there's a shift that occurs that as we orient our lives to Him and we give the fullness of we are to Him who is present with us. What we're doing in that moment is we're entrusting ourselves to him who lives in the father's love. And what the father says of Jesus when we are with Jesus is said of us, that we are dearly loved. So therefore, we no longer have to live with a scarcity mentality that things are going to run out and that we have to go out and earn it and do all these things. No, no, no. The striving is over. It is finished. We can entrust ourselves to Jesus, live secure in his love. And those acts of devotion, they actually become the means by which we remind ourselves of His goodness and of His presence. And it's in that place, it's in that place that we start to do battle against this deforming reality we live in, this scarcity mentality. And there's a word that kind of encapsulates that, and, and we use it all the time. It's this word, spent. We say things like this, I spent so much of my time, so much of my money, so much of my effort, so much of my energy. It seems like this word comes out of our mouths whenever we expect a thing to happen that doesn't. So for example, we we expect a relationship to turn out a way that it doesn't, and we say, I spent so much of my time there, so many good years, a job, an event, and, and it just doesn't give us what we hoped for in return. Do you notice that so much of this language is transactional? It's like a financial assessment. So we, we go around like these little accountants and we're assessing these things based on their ability to return value to us. Meanwhile, this woman stands in contrast and she's giving all that she has to Jesus. See, the point is, is that Jesus is the end of our devotion, not what we can get from him let just say that again. Jesus is the end of our devotion, not what we can get from him. That is how nothing is wasted. How devotion to Jesus, man, there's no waste in that. See, when we're trying to just get value from a thing, really what we're asking is the same question that's being asked in the world around us. Which is, and by world I just mean that a system that is in opposition to the kingdom of God is moving away from and is like agnostic to the things of God. And the question is this, was it efficient? See, this question, it warps our view of life in the kingdom of God. It neglects the reality that Jesus is alive (laughs) And I'm not saying that these categories like efficiency are ridiculous or they don't matter to Jesus. No, they're, they're real and they do have value. They just don't have the utmost value in the kingdom of God. See, Jesus didn't come to tear down economies or human ideologies. Jesus came to be to us and for us who we perpetually fail to be. That is truly human. The ones who are dearly loved by God. Who don't have to ask the question of themselves: Is this the most efficient thing to do? Like, let's just let's just linger here. I, I think there's some people here who need to be set free. Um, what if efficiency? What if efficiency is not God's highest goal for your life? Yeah. Wh- what if success is not God's highest goal? for your life? What if God's intention is to take these these categories that we live in of, of efficiency and to transform them? What if he wants to take all of the spreadsheets and he wants to take all of the lesson plans and all of the diapers and all of those things and he says, I want those? What if he wants to transform and redirect those realities so that he is the end? It's not the value you can extract from those moments or how you feel after a set of praise music. It's not how you feel after a teaching. What if like all of those things in Jesus's mind, he is the end. What do you think that would be like? So I think what Jesus wants to do, especially here in this teaching text is to call to mind how we worship, that he is like worship is the only right response to who God is. And this question of, did it work? Did I accomplish the thing? Man, that leads us to be plagued by the question of why this waste? Like pragmatism is not a fruit of the Spirit for a reason. Because so much of life with Jesus is not practical. See, life with Jesus, man, it's to draw us into this upside-down reality where the last are first and the first are last. And I think that this is what enrages the onlookers. I think, it, I think it's what gives Judas over to this moment of departure where he goes then and he plots with the chief priests to their delight of handing Jesus over. That for him, it all does feel like a waste. And it makes me wonder, was Jesus enough? I think that's a, like just a, a question that's coming to me is, is Jesus enough for us? You know, there's this really, um, a, a teacher who it was really formative in my life when I first started following Jesus. And he had this question like, what if What if you could have everything you ever hoped for? All those dreams that, you know, have like kind of gone to yesteryear. Um, What if all those things could be actualized? What if you had all the money you want, the, the relationship that you desired? What if there was never like all the healing, all those things, like basically your version of peace? What if you could have all of that, but Jesus wasn't there? Would that satisfy you? This question then when I first started following Jesus and right in this moment, I think it's just as potent because it gets to this fact of like, are we trying to extract something from Jesus or is he actually the goal of our lives? That is to be with him, to become like him so that we might live into life, life to the full. So I can't answer that question for you. But perhaps those areas where you feel that frustration, where things do feel like a waste, maybe those are signals, like when you get angry. Maybe that's like, like your body telling you that your expectations are off kilter. And maybe those are moments where the Spirit of the living God is inviting you to say, Jesus wants to transform that. He, he wants, and this is it sounds so silly, like Jesus cares about your spreadsheet, like he actually has an interest in that. I don't know if he cares about the numbers or the balance whether you're in the red or the black, but I think he cares about your heart in that. And he wants to see you move toward him in trust. You see the reality is is that, is that I think for many of us we have a narrow definition of devotion. And so much of that is probably located in our personality. You know, if you're like all extroverted and you're feeling and sensing like this woman, these like vibrant displays of devotion, they feel right, they feel appropriate. But for some of us, like that scares the crap out of us because we're like more linear and introverted and systematic and our devotion comes through our ideals and our commitments and our loyalties and our thoughtfulness. See, either way, what we all need to hear in this is Jesus' words here, that this is beautiful. See, for Jesus, devotion itself is beautiful. And that's the invitation of Jesus, church. He's inviting us to see him as the end, not as a means to another end. And so I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask that the Spirit actually begin to draw out in us how we have sat at the feet of another Jesus. And I would just ask, there's no condemnation in that. If that comes, it's not from the Spirit of the living God. But if there's conviction, for us to attend to that, for us to notice it, for us to name it, and for us to attend to it. And then this is the thing that's risky, is, is I don't want us to do this alone. I want to partner with you in this and then you with me. so that we could actually be transformed into the image of Jesus by the power of the Spirit, is we want to partner with you in prayer. We want to do this with you. You can can email us. There's ways on thegatewaychurch.com to connect with us in prayer. You can send me an email. I would love to pray with you. We could schedule a time to talk on the phone. We just want to begin to ask God to transform our devotion to him. So to that end, let us pray. Jesus, you give us this picture that indeed devotion to you is never wasted, that nothing with you is wasted. And so we just ask that in this moment you'd begin to draw to mind the things that we feel like are a waste, the areas of our lives that we feel like we've given over, given ourselves to, and gosh, there's just utter failure. Would you help us to see that with how you see that? Would you help us to see that as though we are actually living in this world that you are making new? And that there we can, we can move into something. We can move into a project, a creative act, like act, and we can live into that, trusting you and distance ourselves from the outcome. Because we're not just trying to extract things from every moment, but we're trying to actually be present to you because you, Jesus, are the end. So, Lord, would you stir in this church like a spirit of worship? Would you stir up in us a heart for devotion? Would you help us to reorder our lives for the poor? And would you help us to pour ourselves out? So come, Holy Spirit, we pray. As we turn to sing these songs of worship, Lord, would you do a thing in us? Would you actually move us towards you? Would you help us to see you afresh and to hear you who are alive and active? Come, we pray. Fill us, move in us, and help us by the power of your spirit to move towards you in faith. Amen.